0: Welcome to this OLTV podcast series titled The Eastern Fathers on Involuntary Sin by Father Maximus of the Holy Resurrection Monastery in St. Nazan's, Wisconsin. This fourth episode is part one of St. John of Damascus. This is the fourth in our series of reflections on the idea of involuntary sin, the thought of St. John of Damascus, and in particular, seeing through his idea of the integrity of the natural. And now we're finally ready to really talk about St. John of Damascus himself, having first uh, set the stage, as it were, by talking about Augustine, and in contrast, as in Augustine, St. Maximus the Confessor, and the Philosophical influences on St. Maximus as they relate to what the will is and what human freedom is. St. John of Damascus explicitly draws on the work of St. Maximus the Confessor in setting out his account of what it means to be free and human at the same time. What is the human will? What does it mean to have a will? And in fact, so uh, heavily does St. John draw on earlier writers, notably St. Maximus and also the Cappadocian fathers, some scholars, regrettably, have regarded Damascene as little more than an unoriginal recycler of other people's ideas. Father John Mindor, for example, proffered the view that there is, quote, no creation in Damascene's work. It is essentially a school manual and certainly John's approach is very systematic and certainly the fact he is able to be systematic because he to some extent had the work done for him the synthesis that St. Maximus the Confessor brought to the various strands of Greek theology drawing in the theology of St. Cyril of Alexandria, the Cappadocian Fathers and so forth this is something that Uh, has been done for saint john by saint maximus and without that work he couldn't have produced the range of writing that he did but i would argue that we are mistaken if we dismiss saint damascene simply as a mere footnote to maximus or as also happens sometimes particularly in western scholarship Is seen as a mere trial run for St. Thomas Aquinas. But before turning to John's specific teaching on the will and the consequences of this teaching for the understanding of involuntary sin, I have first to to establish my argument by putting St. Damascene's teaching in context, in the context of his time and place in history, because this is crucial for understanding what he wrote, and why he wrote it, and why his writings take the form they do. As we've seen, John is not afraid of correcting some of his predecessor's ideas. I've already mentioned the fact that he clarified, or perhaps even you could say corrected Maximus on the question of whether or not Christ has a gnomic as well as a natural will. This gives us something of an insight into the way Damascene plans and executes his project. And nowhere is this more evident than in the use he makes of nature, reason, and philosophy to explain his understanding of the true nature of human freedom and human flourishing. So let's deal with the historical context first. The best evidence we have indicates that St. John of Damascus, known as Damascene uh, for that reason, was born a subject of the Islamic Umayyad Caliphate, which ruled a vast area of territory from its capital in Damascus between the years of 651 and 750. Critically, you have to understand, this Islamic empire probably contained a minority of Islamic subjects. Probably the majority of the subjects of the Umayyad Caliphs were Christians, but not just, as it were, Orthodox Christians, that is Chalcedonian Christians uh, subscribing to the uh, four or by Saint John of Damascus's time, six ecumenical councils recognized by Constantinople and the church uh, to which St. John uh, belonged well beyond the reach of the Byzantine Empire. Heterodox forms of Christianity, Nestorianism, Monophysitism, but also uh, even further removed from Christian orthodoxy. Gnostic sects, Manichae sects, all kinds of uh, uh, Christian dualist uh, sects were given the same freedom of expression and worship as the uh, Melkite, that is, because it it was accepted by the kings in Constantinople, the Melkite orthodoxy of uh, John of Damascus. Really, almost for the first time since the accession of Constantine to the Roman throne, Christians could not look to the state to enforce an official orthodoxy. Chalcedonian, Diophilite, that is, Uh, the the form of Christianity, the form of Christian orthodoxy to which St. John uh, ascribed. This form of Christianity needed a new and persuasive apologetic, couldn't just rely on the state to enforce it. Now it had to win its argument by reason, by reason, and this explains why St. John wrote as widely as he did, as systematically as he did, and why his writings take the form they do, because he has to, explicitly has to, set his, his thought out in a systematic, in a reasoned way, because he has to persuade. He has to persuade. And, th- and thus he produced his masterpiece, the three-part uh, three Fountainhead of Knowledge. Of which perhaps the most famous part is known as the exposition or the exact exposition on the Orthodox faith. Now, one of the reasons modern scholarship has tended to dismiss uh, St. John is that he's very often read through the lens of later and especially uh, Western systematic theology, Thomas Aquinas and so forth. And again, I've quoted him before, Father Andrew Louth has argued that John of Damascus is far more than the, quote, first scholastic, unquote. We have to read him on his own terms and understand the apologetic scope of his project. If we do that, we see that St. John emerges as a theologian of great subtlety and skill. It is true he presents almost no new ideas. He would have been horrified by the notion. He says explicitly, I shall say nothing of my own, but shall gather together into one those things which have been worked out by the most eminent teachers and make a compendium of them, unquote. That's what he says. But we have seen that in doing that, he will, as if he needs to, alter, correct, clarify, because it is necessary for him to do this to serve his greater purpose, which is to persuade. He has to present the arguments of the fathers in a way that can be understood and that will persuade. It is true that like any patristic theologian he would have been horrified to be accused of originality, but he cannot simply take refuge in unoriginality at the same time. So he adapts the tradition to which he's heir in view of the pressing need of time and place. He is a Byzantine thinker, very much a Byzantine Greek thinker. But he lived in a post-Byzantine world. That's how we have to understand him. And it's this political reality that requires him to think through his theological presuppositions from the ground up, as it were. And this calls forth from him a profound reflection on the role of human reason as the expression of divine reason. A reason that is to say, grounded in nature, grounded in nature, in who we are. Nature and reason are essential to Damascene's project. Unless we are rational beings, his project makes no sense. Unless human beings are capable of talking to one another, using the same language and concepts. Unless, in other words, human beings truly do form part of a society, of a natural society, then what he is doing in trying to persuade using reason would make no sense. From this we get what, again, Father Louth has called, Father Andrew Louth calls, the integrity of the natural. And it is this that runs like a golden thread says Father Andrew through Damascene's work. It shapes his metaphysics, his Trinitarian and his Christological theology, and his anthropology, his understanding of what it means to be human. And therefore, it affects how he would think about involuntary sin. In other words, Damascene's thought reflects a radical sense of the unity, the unity of creation. And the absolute rejection of any kind of dualism, any notion that there is something that separates, ontologically separates nature, human nature, from divine nature. That there is anything but a capacity in the human for the divine. And we will look at this in in particular... Insofar as it, this idea comes out in his writings against Manichaeism, which is a form of dualism, Messalianism, which he reads as a form of dualism, and I'll talk about what Messalianism is later on, and also in the thought of Origen, also a Christian r- uh, writer in which, to some extent, the dualism of the early Gnostics uh, has not been entirely expelled. John takes on all these precisely because he is a radical monotheist, a radical monotheist, and an adherent of the biblical notion of divine creation from nothing, ex nihilo. What supports nature is not that it is self subsistent, but that it is willed. He says, Quote, creation is a work of God's will. It is not co-eternal with him, which is because it is not of the nature of that which is produced from nothing to be co-eternal with that which is without beginning and always existing. This is, of course, a belief that Damascene holds in common with all patristic theologians, including Augustine. But we have seen that in Augustine's thinking we cannot experience God himself by understanding the divine will that creates. What we encounter in creation is a work of God entirely separate from the divine simplicity. That's Augustine. Which means inevitably built into Augustine's view of created reality is a fundamental ontological gulf between the divine will and created wills. What we find in Damascene, however, is the Greek view of the divine will as energia, as energy, as an externalization of God's internal being. Being externalized in act through the exercise of the will. The simplicity of the divine being is distinct from, but, and here's what's critical, distinct but not opposed to the diversity of created being. The simplicity of God distinct from, but not opposed to, the diversity of creatures. And in this, Saint Damascene is testimony to the strength of Greek patristic theology. It is able, through this strength, to resist the powerful intellectual undertow of dualism, something that I think for Augustine was much more difficult to avoid. This is why John is so, John De, uh, Damascene is so determined to employ reason in his theology. He draws heavily on the resources of Greek philosophy to shape a powerful intellectual case for seeing nature as a whole and holy reflection of divine creativity. He does this not just because of a, it's a tactical choice, but because his entire project rests on the notion that nature is an integral whole. And what, therefore, we think with our brains and what we feel in our emotions and what we know in our steepest cells, in our spiritual centre, all of this knowledge, by whatever means it is obtained, is always knowledge of the same thing, which is God's love. And all of nature, all of nature, our thoughts, our feelings our spiritual insight, all of knowledge, all our means of knowledge is a means to become one with the source of all knowledge and God, that is to say, God himself. St. Damascene's entire project rests on this foundational assertion that the same truth can be engaged by our rational and our spiritual faculties. They flow from the divine source, the same divine source. Reason and spirit are absolutely compatible and therefore we can talk about divine truths just as much as we can pray to divine truths. There is a hierarchy of value here because spirit is greater than matter. It's a hierarchy of value. But that hierarchy does not mean that there is nothing of value in what is lower in the hierarchy. Now nowhere is John's respect for philosophy more evident than in his uh, introduction to the Fountainhead of Knowledge, his foundational work. Here St. John makes it clear that for him all knowledge, Gnosis, is ultimately God Himself. He says, quote, Let us approach that teacher in whom is no falsehood and who is the truth, who is the truth. Christ is the subsistent wisdom and truth, and in Him are all the hidden treasures of knowledge, unquote but if god is the goal and source of all knowledge access to him can be found by many means prayer ascesis but also the hard work of intellectual study he goes on to say now the gate is the letter but the bridal chamber within the gate is the beauty of the thoughts hidden behind the letter which is to say, the spirit of truth. Let us knock hard. Let us read once, twice, many times. By thus digging through, we shall find the treasure of knowledge and take delight in the wealth of it. Let us seek. Let us search. Let us examine. Let us inquire. This is a passage from One of the great writers, the Christian East, that should always be uh, on the lips of those of us who have to defend the the theology of the Christian East from the accusation that we're all about the heart and the West is all about the head. Not so. We must knock once, knock hard, read once, twice, many times, dig. He's talking about study, he's talking about thought, he's talking about intellectual labor. This is why St. John begins this magisterial exposition of orthodoxy, not by confessing the creed, but with 68 chapters of philosophy in which he defines his terms and he defines, establishes the contours of dialectical reasoning, what the mind is capable of. His optimism is profound. By nature, by our rational nature, we are equipped with the means for knowing ultimate truths. In the mind, in the brain, just as much as in the heart. Not to the same degree, not with the same clarity, because the brain is a material organ, the heart is a spiritual organ, and spiritual things are known more clearly by spiritual means. But that does not mean the mind is Absent from the process. It is part of the process because it is part of the whole. Nature is an integral whole. And we are body as much as we are brain, as much as we are spirit. Ascent to God, therefore, is not made by flight from the world, flight from thought, flight into a, a simple ascent against our will the truths presented to us. Ascent to God is also made through the world, through our experience of the world. Quote, may those who happen upon this work have it as their purpose to bring their minds safely through to the blessed end which means to be guided by their sense perception up to that which is beyond all sense perception and comprehension thus if we apply ourselves in a meek and humble spirit to the attainment of knowledge we shall arrive at the desired end Unquote. time and again throughout his writings john returns to his fundamental definition of human nature as rational and intellectual He defines the human being as a rational animal, a definition he takes from that greatest of philosophers, Aristotle. Importantly this definition applies to the whole human being, not just the spiritual or the purely intellectual element, because he is insistent that the material element, the material element is capable of participating in the moral and spiritual enterprise in accordance with or against reason, depending on its habits and virtues. It is impossible to overstate the importance for Damascene's overall project, especially his moral vision that we're going to be outlining, his moral vision. It's impossible to overstate how important is this appropriation of basically an Aristotelian theory of human acts. It's especially inherent in his use of the rich idea in Aristotle of states of virtue produced by habit, practice, hexis, and his related understanding of human activity, energia, energy, as a a manifestation of a state of being, something he takes from the Neoplatonic inheritance. And I'll return to this discussion later. Now, let's talk about human nature specifically. We really need to examine this anthropological pillar on which John builds his vision of what it means to be human and to flourish as a human being. The really load-bearing concept is that while human beings are, each one of us, is a composite, we're made up of material and spiritual elements. That's what individual human beings consist of. That's kind of the stuff out of which we're made. But that's not human nature. Human nature is a unity. This is what he says in the 41st chapter of his Dialectica, which is part of the fountainhead of knowledge, part of the the philosophical introduction. He says, Now, even though men are said to have one nature, the individual man... Is not said to be of one nature. This is because, on the one hand, the one nature of man is said to be compound, since all the compound hypostases of men come under one species, whereas, on the other hand, the individual man is not said to be of one nature, since each human hypostasis is made up of two natures, soul and body, I mean, which it preserves unconfused in itself, to which the separation caused by death bears witness let me unpack that this passage sheds light on the meaning for St. damascene of what is for contemporary scholarship a very troubling and highly debated concept what exactly is human nature elsewhere john explains that nature physis Kind of is a specification of the notion of being. It's a, it's being made concrete in a way. It refers to uh, concrete existence made such through the, quote, implanting by God, of an quote, unchangeable, and immutable principle, cause and virtue in each species for its activity. Unquote. Now. Taken at first glance, this seems to imply that human nature is highly defined and static. If that were true, then St. Damascene, I think, could justly be criticized as having set before us a a, a vision of human nature which is very confining and constraining. And certainly, St. John does have a very, as it were, thick notion of what it means to be a human being. His theological anthropology is, as we've seen, based on the assertion of a, quote, unchangeable, immutable principle of humanity. And therefore, we are quite different from animals and angels. The principle, the unchangeable and immutable principle of humanity is different from the unchangeable and immutable principle of an angel, for example. But we have to understand precisely what kind of principle he's talking about. The key lies in his insistence elsewhere in the same book that I'm quoting from, the Dialectica, part of the Fountainhead of Knowledge, that nature and form, the Greek word is ethos, form, That nature and form are equivalent terms. Form is a conceptual reality. It's an idea or a plan. And if we are formed by God, that means we're planned by God. We are divine ideas made real. That's what it means to be a human being. The divine idea of humanity made real. That's what it means. So we discover what it means to be human not primarily by examining human beings, cutting them up, dissecting them. That only gets us bits of humanity. No, we don't discover what it means to be human in that way. We discover what it means to be human by discovering the mind of God. It's in the mind of God that we understand what it means to be planned by God, what it means to be an idea of God. This is certainly a rational discovery, but it's not scientific. We do not discover humanity by dissecting human beings, either physically or metaphysically. All that would give us is the constituent elements of an individual, the soul and the body. One discovers humanity by encountering its form, which is to say its existence in the mind of the creator. One does not begin from the beginning, as it were, but from the end, from the telos. You see, this is why it's not constraining his vision of humanity. Because he's not looking backwards. He's not saying human beings can do this and that, and that's all they can do, because that's the way they were made. He's not looking at it from the point of view of the beginning. He's looking at it from the point of view of where we're going. Our promised union with our Creator in the eschaton. The discovery of human nature is possible only if we discover God, who has called us out of nothingness into being and is continuing to call us to even greater being, eternal being, eternal well-being in him for eternity. Therefore, for St. John, anthropology, the the understanding of what it means to be human, is one of the essential tasks of theology. In this respect, St. John is drawing especially on the theology of the Cappadocian fathers, most especially St. Gregory of Nyssa. St. Gregory of Nyssa taught that human nature, what he called Adam, can be discovered only from the point of view of the eschaton when the full measure of the human race has been brought into being. St. Gregory insists that, quote, the entire plenitude of humanity was included by the God of all, by his power of foreknowledge, as it were, in one body. That's how closely related we are in patristic thought, one body. That's how it it is possible that Christ, by becoming one of us, in a sense becomes, or at least enters into a relationship with every one of us because of the intensely close relationship humanity has, one with another. We are, as it were, one Adam, one body. The point is not just that humanity is made up of a certain number of individual human beings but that in order to uncover the meaning of human existence one must look forward, not backward, not to the side, forward to where we're going. So St. John would contend that human nature is not just the sum of its parts not just the material and spiritual elements that make up each member of the human race nor even the accumulation of those members themselves in some numerical sense. We don't discover what it means to be human from the ground up, as it were, as a collection of defining constraints. Human nature is not a closed box from which there is no escape. This is why today many scholars are so suspicious of the idea that there is such a thing as human nature. To some extent, they have... Uh, they're reacting against uh, an idea of natural law that says that we are the way we are because the way we are the way we are. We are constrained by our nature. We can do this, we can't do that. There is a law that we must follow. St. John would not deny that, but he would say, but there's so much more. Human nature does not constrain us. Human nature opens us up to the reception of God's love. Participation in humanity is already participation in God Himself because we are energies of God. That's the heritage of uh, the Platinian thought in our theological tradition. We are already energy of God and in that sense we participate in God Himself, born in His image and invited to attain to His likeness. The box is not closed. It opens to to infinity. So, when St. John of Damascus says the principle of humanity is thus unchanging and immutable, he doesn't mean it in this static way we understand the absence of change in the material world. It's more like the unceasing dynamism of what the Fathers call... Perichoresis, the mutual indwelling, the dance, the round dance, the mutual indwelling of the divine persons of the Trinity in whom there is, as he says, one surge and one movement. Again, this notion is rational, but not scientific. We can understand it, but we can't prove it by means of dissection and observation. It corresponds to a kind of inner logic of human experience that needs to be articulated in terms of philosophy or theology. What lies at the heart of this experience is that we find in reality an intrinsic unity and wholeness. This truth reaches out to us and we Receive it in our heart and respond to it there.
1: Now, ironically,
0: on the purely natural level, we discover this longing for unity and wholeness precisely when we become aware of its opposite of not its integrity, but its disintegrity, its disintegration in death. And that is why, in the passage I quoted from St. John, He concludes by pointing to the phenomenon of death. Death is for St. John always a tragedy because by the separation of death the material and spiritual elements that make up a person cease to participate in the form and nature of humanity. That's why he makes the point human nature as a whole is is an integral whole not human beings because the composition of human being takes of each human being doesn't take place at the level of nature but of the subsisting individual the hypostasis because it is quote logically impossible for constituent differences to exist in the same thing he says unquote so the substantial elements are not uh, naturally joined if by nature one looks here to the defining characteristics of each element such as extension or its absence body and soul do not of themselves long for any kind of union that's why death is possible for each human being each human being can die the human race the human nature cannot die why because though human beings exist in one sense human nature is a form of God human nature exists in the mind of god it is the mind of god that imposes on the distinct elements body and soul the command to become one to become united it is through act an act of divine creative will that the material and spiritual elements are made to adhere in what st john calls one compound hypostasis mean hypostasin syntheton. Human nature exists only insofar as it is realized in human beings, hypostasized by means of divine composition. Okay, all of this means death is an outrage not so much against nature as against the divine will that has issued the command. that has has planned what what a human being should look like and has formed human beings in accordance with this plan commanded body and soul to come together to form individual hypostases united in this uh, common humanity and death which we have brought on ourselves through our sin is an outrage against this divine will Damascene's attitude toward this tragedy is most profoundly seen in his famous funeral hymns. Anybody who has ever been to a funeral in the Byzantine Rite has sung or heard sung the, the, his famous hymns, funeral hymns. The following are particularly relevant. First, the Triparion in the fourth mode. Your command... Which fashioned me was my beginning and my substance, for wishing to compose me as a living creature from visible and invisible nature, you moulded my body from the earth, that gave me a soul by your divine and life giving breath. Therefore, O Christ, give rest to your servant in the land of the living in the tents of the just. And in the plague of the second mode, truly most fearful is the mystery of death, how the soul is forcibly parted from the body, from its frame, and how that most natural bond of union is cut off by the will of God. Therefore, we entreat you, give rest in the tents of your just, him who has passed over, o giver of life, lover of mankind. That book, The Fountainhead of Knowledge, which we, as we have seen begins with this paean of praise to the human capacity for divine knowledge through the experience of the natural world ends with a final chapter, the very last chapter of this great work on the resurrection of the body. He says, quote, if death is defined as separation of soul from body, the resurrection is the perfect rejoining of soul and body and the raising up again of the dissolved and fallen animal. This is one of John's bedrock convictions. The body is not a principle of resistance to spiritual endeavor. It is intended by God to be a co-worker with the soul in the acquisition of virtue. That is the form of human nature. That is the plan of God to join spiritual and material elements into single beings that can prove by means of their natural their natural cooperation in performing God's commands that there is nothing beyond the reach of God's love. The body is as much capable of divine likeness, which means likeness in virtue according to Damascenes, the soul, he writes in one place. Quote, now, if the soul had engaged alone in the contest for virtue, then it would also be crowned alone. And if it alone had indulged in pleasures, then it alone could be justly punished. However, since the soul followed neither virtue nor vice without the body, it will be just for them to receive their recompense together. This is of capital importance for understanding how St. John of Damascus sees the will. He follows here St. Maximus the Confessor. They both locate the will ontologically at the level of human nature, the natural will. This means that the will relates to God's plan for humanity, form, Energia. It is designed, the will is designed to be the mechanism by which that form, that energy, that plan is realized and liberated by means of concrete human acts. The will (coughs) is intended to be the means by which we negotiate through life at all times, in every place, Revealing the love of God through our choices, through our acts. It's only against this background that we can approach John's, what seems, to to, what might seem otherwise, to be a hyper-intellectualist account of the will, because John does identify the will or locates the will in the intellect. Contrasting it with the instinctual impulses in the lower faculties. He says that proper to the rational and intellectual nature is free motion. Therefore, if the nutritive motion is proper to vegetative life and the impulsive to the sensitive, then surely the free motion is proper to the rational and intellectual. But freedom of motion is nothing else but the will. Unless we understand the significance for St. John of the notion of human nature as formed by the divine plan and therefore informed by the goal to which we are striving, we could easily mischaracterize this account of the will as pitting mind against body. It does nothing of the sort. The will is not primarily the means by which the soul um, restrains. A recalcitrant body. A body that wants to go off and do all, other, all sorts of other things. A body that needs to be controlled and forced to do the right thing. No, that's not the plan of God. The plan of God, the form of human nature, human nature in its most natural is one in which the body willingly cooperates with the will in which the body is transparently the the means by which the will realizes God's love in the world. Not so much soul-restraining, recalcitrant flesh, but above all the means by which the whole human person realizes his or her authentic and natural self. We discover ourselves to be free upon realization of our natural desires. Freedom is a kind of byproduct of the soul's willed activity or its necessary condition. It's not a separate faculty. Better still, it's a mode by or a phase within which we turn from the pull of necessity toward the freedom of ascent of God toward God. We can speak of uh, possessing freedom, but this does not mean that freedom is a kind of accident the way size and colour are accidents. They may change, whether or not I am thin or fat, I'm still myself, but I can't lose my freedom without ceasing to be myself, because freedom is the means by which I realise myself. In the measure that I have freedom, I am real. So speaking of freedom is and have merge in the same way that being and willing merge. The verbs reflect different modes of operation but a single ontological reality. The active soul is always free, free to be. It is the passive soul the soul being acted upon, the soul that is subject to passion, pathos, that finds itself subject to constraint. This has profound implications for our understanding of how John might incorporate involuntary actions under the rubric of sin. In the next talk, we'll consider how he defended this. his basic philosophical and theological insights against the challenges of various alternative ways of seeing the world, various other dualist ways of seeing the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OLTV Podcast. Every Thursday, we have these lectures, and every Monday, we have Jack's Corner, where I, your host, Tarzan Bonanno, sit down with our founder, Jack Figgle, and talk about the founding of the Orientale Lumen Foundation and the goal to bring together the Orthodox and Catholic Churches. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing on Spotify or at our Locals page. The links for that are in the description below. Thank you, and God bless.